If you're ready to elevate your level of care and professional satisfaction, register today for the trusted DPC event that can help get you where you want to go. With three physician-led tracks focusing on starting a DPC practice, growing a DPC practice, and clinical expertise within a DPC practice, the Direct Primary Care Summit has content for anyone no matter where you are in your DPC journey. The DPC Summit is happening June 20th to 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register today at dpcsummit.org. A note about the podcast. So for those of you who may have not heard the previous episode, the midweek release was an April Fool's Day joke. Admittedly, I do come from a family that likes a good practical joke, so I hope it didn't offend any of you, the listeners. For those who had heard of the so-called end of the podcast, I want you, the listener, to know that my DPC story is here to stay. I absolutely love being a connector. I also love hosting a platform to highlight the many important voices in DPC and direct care, and the number of those voices just keeps growing. I'll put in a call to action here and ask you to please leave a review and subscribe today as it helps the podcast get more visibility so others can find it. And I also want to put in a thank you here. Because of you, the listeners, just last week, my DPC story made Feedspot's list of top 15 primary care podcasts. Check out the show notes for the link to the other pods. And if you're not sure how to leave a review, I've included a link on how to do this as well. If fee-for-service and this pandemic can't keep us down and we continue to look out for each other, we can help this movement grow to the fullest extent possible. After the last episode was released, several of you also contacted me to make sure that I was okay, and I am so grateful to those of you who reached out. This highlighted how tightly knit a community we are a part of. Doctors who may have never met in person before are just looking out for each other because that's what we do. We are an awesome lot. So, if it has been a while since you've checked in with your DPC family, consider reaching out to them today. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy hearing Dr. Lauren Hetty share her story. Now, on to the episode. Direct primary care is an innovative, alternative path to insurance-driven health care. Typically, patients pay their doctor a low monthly membership and, in return, build a lasting relationship with their doctor and have their doctor available at their fingertips. Direct primary care means to me the opportunity for physicians to be able to step outside the box, think about something that they can change in the healthcare system that has a real momentum from the ground up to help themselves practice better and happier and live lives that are more fulfilling while helping patients in a way that's much better for them as well. With the concept of a direct primary care practice, that was also a micro practice where I am able to keep overhead low, use technology to its fullest, have no staff, and really offer that direct patient-doctor relationship as the primary focus of what we do. I'm Dr. Lauren Hetty. I'm a DO, a family physician, and I started Direct Doctors back in 2014. And this is my DPC story. Dr. Lauren Hetty is a family physician and co-founder of Direct Doctors in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. She trained in primary care at Brown and found herself motivated to start something new and better. 
Coming fresh out of residency, Dr. Lauren opened her practice with a goal to keep overhead low, modeling after the ideal medical practice or micropractice concept. The guiding principle in the practice has remained the simplest solution is almost always the best. She and her partners have developed hacks to keep overhead low while maintaining the goals of an independent, innovative, and highly accessible practice for their patients. Dr. Hetty is releasing the blog BurdenFreeMD.com, detailing efforts to improve physician burnout, particularly in primary care, and helping fellow physicians find the courage and resources to begin their own low-overhead direct care practices. Together with her husband, Dr. James Hetty, and Dr. Mark Tertian, she has been practicing at Direct Doctors since 2014. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hetty. Thank you for having me. This is so wonderful to get a chance to speak with you because I love that you went from residency into opening Direct Doctors, and now you're approaching your seventh year anniversary. That is fantastic. Yes, it's been quite an interesting journey, but uh, definitely a success. Wonderful. Now, I want to highlight something that you had said in a previous interview. You said, I'm taking on a lot by making myself available to patients 24-7, but I feel that it's essential to provide top-notch primary care. A little bit of sacrifice allows a much better relationship with the patients, and that is more satisfying than traditional treadmill practice. So I want to ask, after hearing that quote again, looking back and looking where you are now, what does this mean to you and has it changed over time? I can imagine that quote is probably a good five to six years old, but in most ways, I would still stand by it in the sense that I know I'm offering better care by offering better access. And ultimately, our practice is very simple. And the concept is we offer an access that you can't get anywhere else. And we continue to do that. I think what's changed over the years is my understanding of what unlimited care means and the fact that I'm a human being, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, and I have other responsibilities and things that I'd like to experience and fulfill in my life that I have to balance as well. So learning what appropriate boundaries are with patients so that I can give them the access that I want to give them and that they expect while still honoring my own goals and and purpose in life otherwise. And so many questions come to mind after hearing you say that. I want to sort of frame the rest of your story under the fact that you have how many patients in your practice and you're able to still be successful as a quote unquote micro practice. Yeah. So we are somewhere around a thousand patients at this point. Um, We now have three doctors and we still have no staff and we don't have plans to add staff probably at any point. So again, if you are questioning that she just said she has no staff, that is absolutely correct. So it blows my mind, um, especially for people who are thinking about starting a direct primary care or a direct care clinic and they are working with the assumption that they have to have staff. How are you able to work without additional staff or support staff? So I think the first thing is it takes a little bit of a frame shift. So especially if you're coming from a practice where maybe you've been, you know, used to having your own MA and used to having a secretarial staff, used to having other administrators, maybe you're used to working with the PA in the office. 
it's a complete frame shift. We are talking about learning to do some things that you've depended on other people to do for you, but having the time to do it and having a much smaller number of actual patient encounters throughout the day so that it's manageable for you. And that number is going to be different for every doctor, for every person. And, you know, my husband, having just joined the practice less than a year, I've been able to kind of see him make that transition from seeing 20 to 25 patients a day for the past five years in a typical fee-for-service practice, being very well supported, coming to a practice, starting from scratch for himself with zero patients and working slowly up. So one of the keys for us is that we did start out of residency, both myself and my partner, Dr. Tertian. Um, He started a year after and joined me, but that was the plan from the beginning. We're co-founders, co-owners, and he and I both had zero patients when we began. So in some ways we were along that learning curve slowly with our patients. In other words, we were figuring it out as we got every new patient. How are we going to do referrals? How are we going to figure out scheduling, et cetera? We had some of the ideas figured out, obviously, in the beginning, but as we went along, we've learned a lot. Um, And by the time my husband joined, he comes from a little bit of a different perspective and he could sort of point out, wow, like, you know, that this is something I would have never done, like check a blood pressure before, or, you know, check my patient in or send a referral as if some of these things are like, you know, rocket science and really taking that step back and saying, whoa, like, I know I'm used to other people doing this for me, but this is like a thing that takes 30 seconds. Like, let's figure out how to break this down and simplify it. We don't need forms filled out. We don't need people checking in with other people. We don't need someone else talking to our patient first. We can do all that and we can get the information directly. And that's going to be much better for the patient in the long run because we know them. It's not, you know, third hand, second hand, et cetera. And I'm sure that the amount of things that you need to do for, you know, any paperwork that you might need, it goes down over time because you've already done that with a patient. Right. And we use technology. I will say it a million times. We use it to the fullest. We try to figure out as many ways as possible to minimize paper, to minimize having to ever have a pen around to write something down, to sign something. We do as much as we possibly can sort of offload it in a sense to the patient through the use of technology, through the use of online scheduling, through the use of an online fax, because all of those things help us to be able to do things more efficiently, but also to be able to do things from almost anywhere if we're not in the office. And do you feel comfortable in sharing from a, an onboarding perspective, what tech do you use to establish a patient and see a patient as they come for future visits? Yeah. So everything that we do, we always keep the cost down as well. So we have a website that's free that we've done ourselves from the beginning using Weebly um, and many other options out there that do the same kind of a thing. We found, you know, the the website that we liked the name of, and we found a theme that we liked, and we've improved it over time from what it was. But on there, we have a page that has all the sign up links, so it has all the paperwork that we need them to do: patient agreement, HIPAA, uh, medical record request, and a link to um, sign up for a first visit. And through that, most patients will do all of those things before they're ever coming into the office. So that simplifies it in the fact that everyone's paid before they arrive. Everyone has filled out all of that information. And when we get them in the office, you know, it's a, it's a, might be a brief chat about how the practice works to remind them if they have any questions. And then it's just going straight into, tell me about yourself. 
Um, most of the time I don't even collect insurance information, although I know at some point I may need it for something like a prior authorization in my mind, it might change by the time I need that. So I'd rather not waste my time and just ask for it at the time that I need it. So keeping that simple, trying to avoid paper as much as possible, and then, um, having the patient do as much as they can sort of online remotely before they show up in the office has worked well for us. When a person is filling out those forms, is it automatically uploaded into your EMR? It's not. So we just have them fill them out, whether it's on their computer, on their phone, which basically almost every phone, smartphone at this point, you just take a picture and sign it. We just have them email it back to us. So we don't pay for any technology or software that does it, but we do ask the patient to just send it back. Of course, once in a blue moon, somebody you know is not familiar with that and can't do it. And that's fine. We are capable of printing something out and signing it if we need to. Um, but for the most part, we avoid that. And then when a patient comes in for a subsequent visit, do you have them fill out any triage papers or anything prior to them coming in? Or do they just make an appointment and then you do everything during the visit? So they make an appointment when they want it, either through our online scheduling, which is part of our electronic medical record, or by texting or emailing us and saying, hey, this is what's going on. What we often will do is even if someone's requested an appointment or their email asking for appointment, we personally triage. So in other words, if somebody says, I have a rash and I want to come in for a visit, we say, wait a minute, send me a picture of your rash. Let's see if this needs a visit. Maybe I can save you a visit. Or you have a UTI. You've had this before. We know what it is. Or let's get a urine sample. I'll send it to the lab. I'll send in the prescription for after. All of that takes me a minute and handles the patient's issues uh, appropriately. Obviously, when something's clinically significant needs to come in the office, then we make that appointment with them or we approve the visit they've requested. Um, but that is sort of our version of triaging. We do it ourselves, which I think is better than having somebody else do it for you. Because if I know a patient is somebody who, even for a small complaint, needs an hour, I know I'm going to put that patient in for an hour. If I know it's somebody who I can see this person five minutes, they just want me to look at the rash in person, that's something that I can do. So I think knowing your own schedule and your own preferences and your patients, you can make your own schedule better as far as how people can access you and schedule visits themselves. That's so relatable. After having patients on your panel for so long, you absolutely know your list of these people cannot have 45 minutes or less. They have to have at least 60 minute appointments because it's usually the patients who you just love talking to or the patients who um, tend to have multiple issues that you're constantly addressing and who might not have as much social support, I find, in terms of my own patient panel. So I I find that's really relatable and how empowering to be, you know, to be able to triage, but then also you don't feel like you're running behind when you finally get the patient, you know, on a telemedicine visit or in person, because you already know exactly what they're wanting to talk to you about. Exactly. Which I also like from a clinical perspective, if somebody says, listen, I have, you know, this new, um, you know, type of pain going on in my hips or something that I'm not sure what I want to, I get to consider the clinical ramifications before seeing them. I can look something up. So I kind of always know to some extent what's coming my direction in case I want to do something like that in advance. In the regular practice, you know, hearing from my husband, he can tell the secretary that, you know, this patient always has to have a 45 minute visit and that patient ends up getting double booked for a 15 minute. And it's like, why do I need somebody to do that for me when I can just handle that myself and do it the right way? When you opened your doors and you had just come from residency, how fast did your practice grow and how did you handle the growth? Yes, this is a very good question. And I think something that 
differentiates a micro practice and a straight out of residency practice from a practice where folks are either onboarding a huge panel of patients that they already had, um, or, um, just growing at a faster pace because of their overhead and expenses. So our choice was to have a very low overhead, to not put money initially because we didn't have it towards marketing dollars to go for free sort of advertising in the form of um, local news coverage and going out to networking events because we had time. And because we didn't have a panel following us, we grew slowly with our patients. So our my first year when I was on my own before Dr. Churchin had joined me, um, I probably was somewhere at 100 to 125, like maybe 10 patients a month at that point. It's hard to remember exactly, but somewhere around there. And we had gone to a DBC conference and heard many people talking about how they got 30 patients a month, 30 patients a month. We always have this, you're always going to get 30 patients a month. We're still barely at 30 patients a month. But when you look at the math, which is very simple in direct primary care, here's your average patient fee that's coming in. Here's the number of patients you have. Therefore, that's your income. What's your overhead? You take that out. Our overhead is around 20%. So when you take that out, we do not need, we never needed to grow that quickly. And we didn't need to have the 600 type patient numbers per doctor because our overhead doesn't require that. We could, and I do think we could, we could handle it, but we don't necessarily choose to do that because we choose a little bit more of a balanced lifestyle. Um, but ultimately, I think making the choice to have a very simple style of micro practice was a choice to grow slower than rather than putting a lot of money into build outs and marketing in the beginning. We didn't want to take a loan. We didn't want to owe anybody. We wanted to keep it simple. And because of that, we are where we are now without owing anybody anything for what we do. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your calls for more content have not fallen on deaf ears. I am so excited to announce the My DPC Story Patreon community. Delve into exclusive full-length interviews with pioneers like Dr. Niti Kapoor, our inaugural physician guest, and get further enlightening insights from our current season's doctors, starting with Dr. Harpreet Sui. Hear our guests share even more, from their worst days to their best days and everything in between. Get access to this treasure trove of conversations and more by joining our My DPC Story community now. Check out the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com forward slash My DPC Story Fan. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash My DPC Story Fan. It's beautiful. And I want to highlight your blog because you have a, a website, burdenfreemd.com. Can you tell the listeners who might not be familiar with your website, what it is and what you focus on there? So right now the website is kind of my latest baby. Now that my youngest is three and a half, of course I needed another project. Um, I am extremely passionate about the idea that physicians are burning out left and right, either leaving practice, leaving clinical practice, retiring early, choosing not to go into primary care in the beginning. So including med students, seeing how terrible it can be and how poor the pay can be in primary care for all the work that people are doing. And 
the answer to that is coming down from, you know, corporate America and insurance companies to add a scribe so you can see more people and have somebody do your notes for you or to add in some yoga and meditation so that you can improve your mindset and outlook on this terrible job that you have. And to me, it's, it's rude and it's infuriating and it's taking away the power of being a physician. We earn this. We pay a lot of money, most of us, to get here. We spend a lot of years in school and then training. And to be told that we have to work a certain way because that's the way that the insurance company and the corporations like it the best is unacceptable to me. And I found a different way to do it. And my partner's found a different way to do it. And my husband's found a different way to do it. And we are happy and our patients are absolutely thrilled. So my website, my blog that I'm working on is about helping people understand that this is something doable for any physician, that you don't have to have experience in business. You don't have to think of yourself as an entrepreneur. You don't have to have a lot of money saved up in the bank. You have the skills already as a physician and all the training you've been through to open a simple micropractice style direct primary care, which I kind of coined the term of DPC light after the concept of lightweight backpacking, which is something that my husband's very fond of and taught me about on his journey in the Appalachian Trail. And take that concept to mean that we can all do this and it's simple and here's the steps and I'm kind of helping people laying out, here's how you can do it. I found over the years, a lot of people are like, wow, there's no way I could do this without staff. There's no way I could have done it without a loan. And I'm like, yeah, no, you could have, you definitely can. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who that's not the right style. And I completely appreciate that. But many, many physicians can take this step if they realize how simple it is. And so rather than me talking about it to hundreds of different people, I figured I might as well write it down in one place so that people who are interested in this concept and this style can refer to this blog to to figure out how to do it. One of the things I find really unique is that you have a tab specifically for calculators. So can you share about what that is? So this is still in the works, but my idea is to be able to have, so one of my thing, side things that I'm passionate about is financial independence, FI, like the fire movement, physician on fire. Um, there's x-ray vision. There's so many different doctors who are in this movement now. Mr. Money Mustache start, kind of started it all in general. And through kind of reading and learning about FI, um, I kind of started to realize that like this in a way applies to the type of practice that we're doing where the concept is lower your overhead. So the concept in FI is lower your expenses. It's not necessarily go and make a ton more money to spend a lot more money because you just find yourself on the same treadmill, this like hamster wheel, which is what we've kind of gotten ourselves into as physicians in a lot of ways. So in order to kind of remedy that, it's like, let's keep it simple. Let's bring down the overhead and let's make this something that is, um, you know, much more doable and um, gives you professional independence. What do you say to somebody who argues, but I have to do some kind of moonlining or I have to do some kind of side gig to be able to pay off my loans or to be able to pay off my, my overhead startup fees? So everyone's situation is obviously going to be unique. And I respect that. I believe that for most physicians, either you have loans or you don't, many of us do. And as far as the loans go, there's a lot of good data and information out there about how to pick the best plan for you. But if you're in a government repayment plan, as we've seen during COVID, there's benefits. We haven't had to pay our loans for a year, basically. Um, But the income-based repayment is great for direct primary care because what it means is 
when you're starting your practice and you're not making much money or you're making less than you were and you can't afford the big loan payment you used to pay, the income-based repayment will adjust so that you can pay it. So for the most part, I feel like physicians can work on that one if they have the loans. Um, there's always the argument about public loan service forgiveness, which um, you do have to forfeit if you go into direct primary care right away. And that's you know a big topic I'd love to see the AAFP and, and other primary care organizations take up um, with the government because I don't think it's necessarily fair that a specialist who makes five times as much as me gets their loans forgiven because they work for a hospital. But side note on that one. Um, but anyway, the income-based repayment is fine and we can totally make that work. When it comes to your own income, again, obviously this is something that everyone's going to have to figure out themselves. But my point is you don't need tens of thousands of dollars. Most people can probably start a DVC micropractice with $10,000, give or take, maybe a little more depending on what you want to do, maybe a little less if you want to start with no physical office space. There are hacks to do it. There are ways to do it. There's, you know, I've had people who have taken out a 0% credit card and paid it off within the next 15 months before it started charging interest. So there's always ways to do it. And the concept of a micro practice and a simple style means that you don't need a ton of money and you can start paying yourself quickly when your overhead is low. To highlight a, another way of thinking about doing a micro practice, especially now with the pandemic, um, even something as simple as, Google Suite and a communications platform, literally that's less than probably what, like $50 a month to, to start out, even if you don't have an EMR. But a strategy somebody had shared with me was consider that and consider getting an EMR when you have 50 patients or more. There are so many ways. Like, and that's part of what I'm thinking about calculator wise. Like, here's the absolute basics. Like you have to have a phone number. You probably have to have some kind of fax number. Beyond that, you need a license and malpractice and you need your stethoscope, which you probably already have. And a couple of pieces of simple equipment you probably already have. And like, literally that's all you need to be a doctor. You can go do home visits to start out. You can drive around in your car and you can make, you know, take care of newborns if you're a family physician. Like there's so many ways that you can get going. And if you calculate what are the expenses of those essentials to be able to start? Okay, maybe that's $2,000, $3,000. When am I going to make $3,000? Well, I need, you know, X number of patients in order to cover that. Because the great thing about the membership is if you bring on $500 of patients month one and you bring $500 of patients month two, by month two, that means you brought in $1,000. And by month three, you're at $1,500. So at that pace, you're covering the overhead that's essential by six months. And then you add on whatever the next thing is, or you start to pay yourself a little bit and then you see what's really essential. I do not advocate for taking out a loan and spending a million dollars on building out, you know, office space and making it really nice and fancy because when it comes down to it, people value access to their doctor. That's what's missing in the traditional fee for service practice. It is not a fancy office that's missing or a nice nurse that's helping you, you know, draw blood. It's the access to the physician. And I think that's important to highlight also because for physicians who might be in a more rural setting where Unlike other DPCs where the value is brought in by cheaper lab costs or cheaper imaging, the value to a patient in some some place like a rural environment might be just, oh my gosh, I can actually speak with my doctor. And you're right in terms of it, it is not necessarily you know, written in stone that you have to have a brick and mortar to be able to give those patients that value by access to you as a physician. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you to Spruce Health for supporting the My DPC Story podcast. 
The ways we communicate have changed dramatically over the past decades, but technology and tools in healthcare have not kept pace. Patients want more access and digital convenience, as well as the ability to text their care teams. Care teams are inundated with more communication and rising expectations, but are still using tools and technology stuck in prior decades. Spruce Health created a solution for the tech-forward DPC practice by creating a communication product designed to serve both the patient and the doctor through intuitive HIPAA-compliant workflows, tagging, scheduled messages, and triage templates ready for use, whether you're on your phone or in the exam room. New users get 20% off for the first 12 months of a paid plan with code MARYAL20. That's M-A-R-Y-A-L-2-0. So check out Spruce Health today at sprucehealth.com or check out the link in the show notes. Exactly. I mean, I think the idea of starting out with home visits is not something most patients would be upset about. Now, also since COVID, telemedicine is so huge that you could do some of your stuff on, you know, Zoom videos, and then the people that really need an in-person visit, you go do it at home, and you could do that for you could do that for a year or two, probably. I mean, you make maybe you could do that forever if you really wanted to. Um, the flexibility of just the ways that patients can access you nowadays are so huge, and just allow you to have such flexibility in how you want to practice. I want to go back to when you mentioned Mr. Money Mustache and Physician on Fire. Are there any particular podcasts from those resources or other podcasts that stick out in your mind as podcasts that you must listen to? Um, well, one thing I will say that the first thing that pops in my mind is I listened to the podcast you did with Garrison Bliss. And I feel like anyone who's interested in direct primary care, even if, I mean, almost seven years in, I ha- you know, you have to hear somebody like that who did this, you know, from the start and had these brilliant ideas that we're all now piggybacking off of. So I think that that was a really interesting podcast to listen to. Um, for some of the financial independence stuff, I think is super interesting just for physicians, but for like everybody in general um, and going to Mr. Money Mustache's website is the best thing to do and look at his, like, he's got a link to like the top ones or like the major, the most important, like, read those. And if you, if you're into it, you'll know it like within a few of those that, that this is like a really interesting concept that you can apply to so many different aspects of your life, business, et cetera. Physician on fire is the one I think who does a great blog about the four different physicians, which I think is a really interesting one and good to look at like, "Hmm, who am I and who do I want to be? And again, that kind of ties back and I'd love to do a blog and like sort of, um, you know, homage to that blog about the four different types of direct primary care or, or not even direct primary care, but the four different types of physicians within this world of DPC versus fee for service. And sort of, are you, you know, working really hard to see all these different patients and always feeling like you're behind and you're working at home and just kind of keeping up on the treadmill versus, you know, like the balance that you can have and sort of what kind of physician you want to be. And I could just envision your development of that on your blog as somebody who eats uh, at, a, at a voracious pace, all of this information about business and finance and how it can relate to healthcare and you as a physician in healthcare, it would be really interesting to go to Physician on Fire, read that information. And then as you develop your take to then be able to use that information, relate to what you're saying so that a physician can even be more prepared to share that information with other people who are interested in direct primary care as the movement continues to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that highlights the fact that 
my point of view is that this isn't just direct primary care, it's direct care. And ultimately there are specialists, not, you know, not every specialty, not orthopedic surgery, probably like people who need to be in the hospital need to be in the hospital. And I get that. Um, but there's quite a few specialties that work more on a primary care type of pattern that I think could really explode in this world of direct care too. What is your opinion on new tech that might come out and potentially could be helpful for your practice? Over time, and this is where my partner and my husband and I, like it's a good balance because everyone kind of comes at things a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, that we'll look into something and be like, okay, like, is this worth trying to integrate? Like, is this going to either save us time, mm-hmm. save us money, you know, make things easier for our patients yeah. to get more patients? Yeah. And if it doesn't like apply yeah. on all those levels, yeah. then, or we're doing something that maybe takes, you know, 30 extra seconds and we feel like, you know, that's not going to change it then we often say we're good where we are. Like, let's try to keep the focus on simple as possible, but we're always kind of looking at and reevaluating. Is there a way to do this better, et cetera, as we go along. And we've definitely evolved. Like we used to do more printing things out, more paper signing. Like we did a lot of that more in the beginning than we do now. I want to highlight the fact that you are in practice with your husband. Yes. So the funny part about it is my husband and Dr. Tertian look a lot alike. So even before my husband joined the practice, people thought Dr. Tertian was my husband. And now that my husband's there, people come to see him and think Dr. Tertian is him. So there's a lot of that hilarity going on constantly, but um, it, it's been great. Having a partner for me from the beginning was key in allowing me to have two babies while I was in my direct primary care practice and be able to take the time off that I wanted to, to be completely away from practice. Um, and we knew when we were making this decision many years ago, you know, sitting on the OB floor in the middle of the night in residency, um, that that was going to be an important piece to have that flexibility of having a partner who was not my husband to start off with. So that when I wanted to be out, take vacation, et cetera, there was a way to do that. Um, so that sort of idea hatched from the beginning and has worked really well. And, you know, we've been very lucky in that Dr. Trishan and I as partners have worked out wonderfully. Um, the idea was always that someday my husband would join. And ultimately it took him a little bit longer than we probably thought it would have after five years because the job he was in was, was good. It was fine. He paid well, you know, like there weren't enough reasons that he was, he wasn't dying to leave. But ultimately we got to the point where, we felt like the balance for our work family life was not as good as it should be or could be. And, you know, his, he was driving 45 minutes both ways and he was getting to the point of starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed with so many patients and so being responsible for so many lives, so to speak, um, worrying he was going to miss something, worrying he was just, you know, going too fast and skipping over things and all of that. And I said, you know what? Like, I think we're ready for you. <laughs> I'm at the point where I think I have enough patients. Dr. Tertian has stopped taking patients already for a while. Um, so like, let's do this. So, you know, he's always wanted to do it, but the the hesitation is hard to make that, make that transition. And I kind of like, like in it, so you just got to rip off the bandaid because there's not going to be necessarily a point where it's like, you know, either I hate my job so much or I'm just dying to do so. Sometimes you just have to rip it and go for it. And that's what he did. And of course, we had no idea it was going to happen in the middle of COVID when he gave his notice the October the prior year that when he was leaving in May, it was like the heat of COVID. And we had no idea how that would affect everything. But um, it worked out just fine. As we now know, GPC practices did great during COVID. Um, and ours was no exception. 
working with him now, I always tell people, I mean, we met in medical school, we did residency together. We love to work together. So we're extremely happy to be at the same practice. We've always wanted to be, but we're physicians. So we work independently. So, you know, I'm not telling him what to do and he's not telling me what to do. So I think that that's an important part of it too. But the balance that we have now in our work and our life and being able to have days off together frequently and not have him be gone in the morning when the kids have to go to school, all of those things are just, you know, immeasurably wonderful for us. And, and thing we've really feel like we've hit like our stride as far as the balance for work and family. That's awesome. And when you said, yeah, I think, you know, it would be, it would be great if you could come now. At what point did you and Dr. Trishan decide, yeah, I think we're okay with the number of patients that we have on our panel that we can bring on your husband in this case? For us, we, uh, as our family, obviously wanted me to be making enough money to cover our expenses so that when he made that transition, um, you know, there was no pressure on him. It was just do this at the pace that works for you. Um, and I think, you know, in general, both Dr. Tertian and myself and, and now my husband, I've always kind of had the goal that we felt like we want to make a salary that's at least equivalent to what other doctors are doing in the area. And, you know, ideally a little bit more. Um, and Rhode Island is a very low paying state. So the bar was low and we definitely are making more than our colleagues at this point. Um, it, it at a level that we feel like is fair and reimbursing us to the point that we kind of feel like our value is. So I think that that was part of it, like kind of adjusting that. And ultimately we've raised our prices a little bit over time um, as we've sort of felt like the value wasn't quite enough for certain situations. Um, so my husband has benefited from that in the sense that his average is higher than ours. So he ultimately, you know, may not choose to take as many patients based on that. But then again, you know, the balance of uh, Dr. Tertian has like 425, 450, something like that. I have like 350. Um, I chose you know, to end a little bit early because I kind of hoped my husband and I would be at a similar number. Cause I think that's better than me having like 500 and him having 200. I think I'd rather we just be even. So a lot of those factors go into what is your number, but I think the calculator, again, you go back to that, you say, what do I want to make? How much do I want to work? How many patients do I think I can manage in that? Um, and you figure out where your balance is. Do you guys experience churn often in your practice? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I think everybody will tell you that's part of direct primary care. It's part of any practice, any family, you know, primary care practice. Um, I'm not sure it's any more in direct primary care than it is in other practices, but we certainly, um, you know, have patients passing away because we do a lot of homebound elderly care. So that's something that does affect us. We have people moving, we have people coming and going, we have people leaving. Sometimes we don't know why, but for the most part, you know, it, it's sort of the people that are moving and the people that are passing away that make that that change. So, um, you know, I, I've sort of managed that by opening a wait list. And then when I do have a little bit of flexibility and I feel like I can take another patient or two, I put that out to the wait list and, you know, see kind of who's ready at that moment. And how do you manage your wait list? Is it built into your EMR or do you have it separate? Um, I actually just use a Google form that's on the website. I want to bring in another example that you had written about in the, in the past because you had a patient needing and frankly demanding your attention for a non-life-threatening, non-urgent issue. And the patient was contacting you on the same day you had your daughter's first soccer game. So I want to talk about boundaries because especially being a mom, a wife, a doctor, a micro practitioner who is successful and has more than one child, how do you go about establishing and 
solidifying boundaries for your life and your practice? So I think it's been a learning process for sure over the years, as many of us in direct primary care would probably say, when you first start out, you want to please everybody. Um, and I think that's a young doctor thing in general. You, you want everybody to like you and feel like you're doing a good job and you're doing everything again. I think early on, um, my pitch about my practice may have led this particular patient and maybe others to think that I was sort of on call in the sense that any, any moment of any day at any point for any reason I could show up at their house for a visit. And, um, I may have meant that in the beginning. And I realized over time that that was not something that was sustainable for me. And that was not the practice that I wanted. And I constantly advise people when I talk about this, that you need to make this the practice you want, because in the long run, whatever you're consistent with is what your practice is going to be. And if you're consistently giving drop of the hat home visits, because you're passionate about doing that and you love that. Awesome. Like make that your practice. If that is not what you want in your life, then don't promise that and don't do that and make those boundaries. And there's learning blocks along the way and stumbling blocks. And, you know, that was a difficult situation for me where I basically, um, you know, had moments where I had to ask certain patients to not necessarily to leave the practice, but I had to encourage them that this is not the kind, this is not what I can offer. If you want something where any, any moment, any time of day, anywhere, any reason that's called an urgent care. I'm not able to do that. I'm a human being. So once I realized that about myself, I could explain that to patients. And so now when patients join the practice, I explain that to them. I am accessible to you in an unlimited capacity. If you need to text, email, or reach me, we will then decide based on clinical necessity, whether you need a visit. I can usually see you within a day or two if absolutely necessary. And I can't, my partner can fill in for me, but typically we can handle a lot of things remotely and anything that's really that emergent, you may need the emergency room. So I just phrase it differently and I've never had a problem since. And if a patient reaches out to me after hours and it's not urgent, I don't respond till the next morning. Um, or I ask them, you know, please email me if it's something not urgent. Like I sort of help train patients over time. What is the appropriate way to have the right boundaries with me? So earlier you had mentioned how when you were starting out and you had more time to reach out to avenues like the media um, and get publicity and get free marketing that way. How, I want to ask, how did you go about doing that? Yeah. So I think absolutely in the beginning, figuring out a marketing strategy is important and there's lots of different avenues you can go with us wanting to keep our overhead as low as possible and not having much income in the beginning. We decided to go free whenever possible. So the way that I did that was I went through the local town newspapers the local state newspaper, um, the online newspapers in the area. And I emailed whoever I could find, editors, uh, a writer of an article that I read. And I sent them all an email explaining, this is what we're doing. It's new, exciting, it's different. We're the only ones doing it so far in this area. And wouldn't you like to talk more about it? And of course, many people never got back to me, but enough people did that we ended up on the cover of the Providence Journal, which was a, a big deal. We ended up with a couple of news stories on TV and we ended up with a handful of, you know, local newspaper stories. And from each of those, we got, you know, a couple, five, maybe 10, 20 from the Providence Journal because it's a bigger reach, um, but we didn't pay for any of it. So as we were getting going and starting out, I would just keep reaching out. And if I hadn't heard from somebody, you know, yet, I would reach back out to them. And oftentimes they would say, oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't get back to you. We have time to run the story now. So let's do this. Um, and between that and going myself to local marketing, uh, local 
networking groups, like BNIs, um, whatever I was invited to, I would go and do my one minute elevator pitch, which I therefore practiced a lot and got better and better at over time. Um, I started to get that ball rolling as far as patients coming in. That's a slow ball at first when you're going from zero. But as you start to do that, you hit some sort of critical number, which I feel like is around 75 to 100 patients where patients start referring patients. And that really gets the ball rolling. And ultimately from that point, putting all that stuff, all the local press that we got onto social media, pushing that all out there, we eventually got to the point where the ball was really rolling. Now, a couple of years in, we did eventually hire somebody to help us do the social media marketing, to help us do, you know, get on top of doing blogs and videos and all of the things that are up on our website and on our Facebook page at this point um, to really take us to the next level. But we waited until we had the income to support that. As your practice grew, as people were hearing you and seeing you and reading about you in the media, if they would contact your practice, would they get a voicemail that you would call them back or would they get an, if, an email back if they reached you through email? How would that work on the patient's, from the patient's perspective? Yeah. So there's some information on the website and then from there, people would either email or call. And, um, you know, at over time, I developed sort of an email that I can copy and paste that is here's the spiel on the practice, copy, paste, everybody kind of gets the same thing. And I tweak it a little bit if there's a question. We still and always have let our voicemail go to voicemail. And on our voicemail, we say something very particular about the fact that because of the way our practice works, we're not able to answer the phone. Please leave us a message. We promise if it's urgent, we'll get back to you. And if you're a new patient interested in joining, please check out the website and give the address. That has really helped us as far as workflow because we're not trying to answer the phone while we're seeing patients. We're letting people know that if it's something urgent, we will see it here and get back to you. And if it's something where you're interested in the practice, go online, read about it. Maybe it's for you. You sign up for a visit and that kind of skips a little bit of a step forward for us. Um, and over time, those workflows have really worked well for us and patients seem to be fine with it. Occasionally, someone will leave a voicemail and want to call back and that's fine. We'll do it when we have the time to do it. You know, not a problem, but. Being that you are approaching your seventh year anniversary, I'm sure multiple people have reached out to you in terms of, you know, your story, how have you done it? How have you been successful up to this point? And how do you go into the future? What are some of the most common questions that you hear that you haven't already covered from people interested in your model of practice? Everyone wants to know how do we do it with no staff? How do we keep our overhead so low? And I've kind of answered a lot of those questions as far as the things we do ourselves. We try to offload that onto patients whenever it makes sense and using technology to its fullest. Beyond that, I'm trying to think of like what other kinds of questions I often get. I would say it usually the next step is really more of the nuts and bolts of how do you run this kind of a practice, which can get into some nitty gritty details and everybody likes to do it differently. Um, but when you're talking about your workflow, people want to know, like, do you have a waiting room? Like what happens in the waiting room, you know, and pre COVID people would walk in and ring a bell. So that's why we don't have a receptionist because a bell does the same job. Nowadays, COVID has made it even simpler and patients text us when they're there and then we let them in. And it really thinks these little like quick workflow things start to make you realize like how easy it is to just keep it simple and how unnecessary it is to add layers to something that can be done so simply. And our patients absolutely appreciate the fact that it's just easy. And so many patients walk in the door for the first time and go, I thought this was too good to be true, but like, here you guys are, you're doing it. And we're like, yeah, we are like, it's, you know, it's working. It's great. 
Um, but I think a lot of those little questions about how do you do this? How do you do that? Like the little details and the nitty gritty is kind of the next level of what we get a lot of um, and can be really tailored to the individual, but there's a lot of general themes to it. Going along with the direct care light idea, I want to shoot some rapid fire comparisons at you to see what your take on these comparisons are. So disposable versus autoclave. Autoclave. We don't do enough procedures that it isn't easy to autoclave like once a month. Like we have a couple of the things that we need. We have one set as far as like IUD type of equipment, because we just don't do enough that we would need more than that. And then we've researched for a long time, an autoclave that was about $1,200. And we sort of compared that to the idea of having to buy things and how much that would add up to be. And ultimately the autoclave made the most sense for us. Paper versus no paper. So obviously no paper, very biased on this respect. One, I care about the environment. That's a big driver. But two, paper is a creator of clutter and an issue to deal with. So we cringe when we get a big stack of paper records from another office, which still happens once in a while, but we put on our records request only our facts for the last few years. And that has really cut down in the number of paper charts that we receive. Um, but when you have a stack of paper, you have to do something with the paper. So you have to scan the paper in, you have to shred it, or you have to file it. And all of those things, if you think about that overhead, 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 space, 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 the more you can limit that stuff, the more you have it all in this technological space, the less work time money goes into it. And those are always the things we're looking at. In-house pharmacy versus not having an in-house pharmacy. We do not have an in-house pharmacy. We do offer wholesale medication to our patients because we are able to do that in Rhode Island, but we do not stock medications. So when we looked into the concept of having a pharmacy, we realized we would need labels, label printer, inventory that you have to pay for, inventory that you have to keep track of, pill counters. I don't even know what else you need because we don't do it. What we do is when a patient needs something, let's say they're not sure if they can get their uh, amitriptyline cheaper through us. We look up the amitriptyline at the dose that they're on and say, look, we can get you 90, we can get you 100, we can get you 500 of your 25 milligram amitriptyline for $2 or for $5. Which would you like? Or okay, you can get it at the pharmacy cheaper. Great. You know, keep doing that. If they want us to order it for them, we wait until we've added up the number that we need in order to get free shipping. So it might be a couple days. We get it shipped. We hand the bottle that we get, put a little handwritten label on it to the patient or they pick it up. Done. So we've eliminated all the costs of inventory and bottling and labeling and all of those things by just ordering it when people need it. And for us, that's been a huge money saver and it's been a great way to offer a benefit without it costing anything to us. Lab discounts or not offering lab discounts? So this decision was made for us because in Rhode Island, we cannot do client billing for labs. So we don't have the ability to offer great prices on labs directly through us. If we could, I think that would be something that we would have to really consider because when you offer it, it's not a cost to you, right? So the lab gives you everything that you need. And we still have all the supplies. We still draw for some patients when they want cash pricing, which is somewhat better than if they go to the lab, although that's kind of gotten worse and worse over the years, unfortunately. But ultimately the concept that you have to offer labs, that you have to offer uh, imaging, or you have to offer all these add-ins in order to get patients to see the value in you and your practice 
I argue against. In our practice, patients join for our value of being accessible, being the doctor that is directly available to them. It's not the added services, and we've been successful just doing it that way. And the same question in relation to imaging. Imaging discounts or no imaging discounts? So over time, we've found local imaging places and talked with them to get what their cash prices are so that we can offer that information to our patients who want to be able to do that, whether they're uninsured or have a health share or have a high deductible and want to go that route because they're never going to meet their deductible. Um, And we found that at least being knowledgeable in that is much different than most doctors in the practices down the road. And that's enough that when people do need that, they can get it from us. And we haven't found the need to go beyond that. You've already said that you do home visits, but why home visits versus not doing home visits? So we have found that there is a niche within our state of patients who are just unable to access care without the ability to leave their home, whether they're elderly, which is who they are for the most part, or younger and disabled, or another service we've offered is um, homebound visits for newborns in the first month of life. We feel like we're targeting a population that their needs are not being met otherwise. And we do charge more for the um, full homebound care that we offer to our elderly patients, but the ability to give that level of care to them when nobody else is offering anything near it and to be able to be a part of often end of life care as a mix in that um, is really one of the most rewarding things we do. And I think it really adds a nice balance to our practice. Business plan or no business plan? (laughs) We didn't really have a business plan in the formal sense. None of us are like business school trained. And ultimately, I think I did end up writing one later as sort of an exercise. Um, And because early on, I did this pitch contest where I I think I might have had to submit one. Um, But we did not start with a business plan. We absolutely started with a plan. So we, especially my husband and I, obviously we're married and, you know, we sit up and talk every night, went through a million different possibilities of how to do this. And ultimately, I think the key factor was talking with Dr. Tershan, talking with my husband and I, and all coming to the point of like, what's the goal for us? And the biggest goal was we want to be paid in a sustainable way. We want to enjoy our practice and we want to have time for our family. And because all of our goals aligned, we then were able to say, okay, this is what we want. Here's the practice options. How do we work the practice options and the financials and the actual setup to attain that goal? And, you know, along the way, it maybe wasn't um, as direct of a path. Like you learn so many things as you're, once you're in it, that you want to change that you didn't realize you would have wanted this way or that way. Um, But ultimately, if you keep your goal in mind and you keep your methods in mind, you can get there. Now, I want to shift to folks who have started already or who have been in practice for a while. What advice or what words of motivation can you give to somebody if they're having, if they're hitting a rut, like if they are not having, you know, 10 to 30 patients join their practice in a month, how do you get through those tough times, especially when you might be in a practice where there's no staff, no other fellow physicians with you? Mm-hmm. So I think the first year to two years in any direct primary care practice is uncertain times. Um, I hope now people who are starting out have more confidence that it's going to work ultimately than maybe I did when I first started and didn't know very many people who had ever tried it. Um, I think the model has now been proven, but everyone does their direct primary care or their direct care practice differently. And there are certain flaws that 
are uh, more detrimental to a practice than others. Obviously, one of my my big concerns is when people hire a bunch of staff or put a bunch of money down in the form of a loan or a lot of money out of pocket um, to get started, because I think that starts you off in an unnecessary hole. So I find once you're rolling in the practice and you don't feel like you're moving in the direction you want to be moving, don't be afraid to stop and take a look at what you're doing. I know it can be hard to feel like I've already put this money in. I've already hired these people who are depending on me. But when it comes down to it, if you cannot sustain the practice that you're building, all the staff will be gone. All the patients will be out a doctor and you'll be searching for, you know, whatever the next thing is for you. And obviously if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. And I respect that. But taking the step back and saying me continuing to practice in a way that is fulfilling and sustainable to me where I'm paying myself what I deserve to be paid is important to allow all these other things to happen. They're all dependent on me. And if I can't sustain a practice, then everyone hurts. So I think that fear of feeling like you're not doing it right and you need to change is too much. I just got to get out of this. I would encourage people to really take that step back and reach out for help. Like talk to people who have done it and who've gone through probably many of the concerns and questions and jumps that you're going through um, and, and get advice on what you can do and have someone objectively look at your practice and what might be able to be tweaked to improve it. I love that you say that because it just makes me think of a recent episode that I had listened to on the Biz Chicks podcast, that's C-H-I-X. If anyone is wanting to listen, they were talking about, or the host was talking about the 80-20 rule and how in all of the things that a person can put into a business, only about 20% of what you're actually doing is going to make an impact. And to reevaluate that 20%, what is actually working for you and taking that 20% and, and really running with it. So I think that the idea of speaking with other people, especially is important to, you know, potentially focus in and try to figure out what that 20% is for a practice, but also just to have that camaraderie and that platform to, you know, to, to be able to share with other people, your frustrations. And, you know, most of the time, especially just reading things on the Facebook group, somebody else has gone through that experience as well. Yep. Exactly. I think the Facebook groups are great for doctors who are thinking about it, or especially who are in the middle of it, trying to figure out how to modify what they're doing. For those listeners who have really identified with what you've shared or who you have inspired, what is the best way to reach out to you after this podcast? Um, So probably going to the blog, burdenfreemd.com is a great way to do it. You can... um, send your information there. Tell me blogs that you're looking for, questions that you have. Um, I'm also toying with the idea of sort of offering some sort of like objective look at people's practices or as you're starting, because I really am super passionate about helping doctors get out of this terrible system in a way that's better for them and patients and helping them enjoy their lives and their livelihood. Um, so I like the idea of trying to work with people and really because of what we're talking about is such an individualized practice for each different physician. And it, I want to lay out a lot of the sort of overview of how I think you can do this practice, but looking at an individual's practice, especially if they're three years in or four years in and they have questions and not working, like I love kind of helping with that kind of thing. So please feel free to, to, to reach out. And, you know, if, if you have ideas on how I can do that better, I'm definitely interested in it. Thank you so much, Dr. Hetty, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great.
Next week, look forward to hearing from Dr. Vance Lassie of Holton Direct Care. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends, too. For more information on this episode and much more, please visit mydpcstory.com. Also, for the latest in DPC news, check out dpcnews.com. Until next week, this is Marielle Conception.